Hey guys, if you want updates on our latest episodes, then be sure to subscribe to the Film Colossus podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you'd like to support the show and hear episodes ad-free, then subscribe to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash filmcolossus. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. My name is Chris Lambert. And I'm Travis Bean. And on today's episode of Film Colossus, we are going to break down Phil Tippett's masterpiece, Mad God. We'll discuss the film's broader philosophical commentary, as well as address several of the movie's more confusing elements. Uh, If you love this movie, then get ready for an illuminating conversation from two fellow fans. Mad God. Mad God. Oh, he's such a mad God. It's just, (laughs) there's so much anger in this movie. It's passive aggressive anger. It's not the smite you and smite your entire family anger that old school uh og bible anger Mm -hmm. it's the i've wrecked the world and now you just get to live in this awful (laughs) menagerie of pain and suffering yeah it's uh that's kind of my big takeaway from this movie and we'll get into the the deeper meaning of it especially chris since he wrote an absolutely insane explanation of this movie that explains stuff that I didn't even know you could explain. Um, but like broadly, like that's my takeaway. That was my takeaway. The first time I watched this movie was like, this is a very cynical and monstrous view of humanity and like where <laughs> we're at and the way Phil Tippett sees the world. Yeah. I is I feel like my analysis of this movie should have gotten a Pulitzer nomination. <laughs> I strongly agree with that statement. I I say it somewhat jokingly and somewhat just honestly. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it really is a feat because, um, you know, I'm somebody who I love silent films. So, like, that was a big reason I I really enjoyed this movie. I, I kind of, in many ways, silent films are doing exactly what I want in the sense that they're not laden with exposition and... Uh, unnecessary details like all these things we now think like are important for stretching the meaning and art of a film uh i I like that this movie really doesn't tell you anything it's you're just kind of thrust into this world and you're always navigating it and trying to figure out where you are and to extract meaning from a film like this like is a little bit tougher um it's more rewarding i think but a little bit tougher and requires a little more work from you. And the fact that you did what you did, like everyone's got to read it going through every character and every scene. And like generally what the film is saying about the world and how you can like make connections between everything. It's, it's a feat. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. This... I would never do it. <laughs> <laughs> you're a crazy person though. So you, you're a mad God. You know, this was one that I heard the title of, I feel like it premiered at a bigger film festival or was t- 
talked about. I mean, this was the stuff of lore in the film community for a while. Oh yeah, as Phil Tippett is like legendary yeah. in the movie arena. Uh, just I think every single person who watches movies has seen a movie that Phil Tippett has been involved in, which yeah. you could say about a number of people, right? Like Harrison Ford <laughs> or Spielberg, but. Tippett, you know, working on Star Wars, Jurassic Park, uh, the dinosaur consultant on Jurassic Park. What a great. That's the best credit ever. Yeah. The job title that is. Oh, yeah. I was advised <laughs> on the motion of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Uh, I think for you and I, I mean, I don't know if you were a big Star Wars fan as a kid, but I we both were big RoboCop fans, right? Uh, not as a kid. I mean, to be honest, I didn't watch a ton of movies as a kid. Uh, um, I I certainly wish I had. Like, if I had been <laughs> exposed to like RoboCop, you know, I I was a Jurassic Park fan as a kid, um, but I never really saw Star Wars. Uh, but still, I mean, you're getting the point. You're getting at is like, you know, you see something like Jurassic Park as a kid. What Phil Tippett did on that movie kind of goes unsung. Yet, like, it's absolutely crucial and essential to the impact it has on you. There's a Netflix episode that talks about the making of Jurassic Park and specifically how when it first was getting going, they were going to use stop motion for the dinosaurs. And Phil Tippett was the one who was going to be in charge of that. And there was actually this contingent of people, just like a few people, I say contingent, but it was a few people that believed in doing the CGI version and actually brought in and made the executives look at the CGI <sighs> version of the T-Rex and blew their minds. Yeah. And that's what caused the switch from stop motion to CGI in that movie. And that actually was a huge tipping point moment for Phil Tippett in Mad God because no he, <laughs> he had been, oh yeah, he had been working on Mad God uh, early 90s, like 1990s, like late 1989 uh, while working on RoboCop 2 he had this idea was working on it for a few years and then that switch to CGI in Jurassic Park that moved him from doing the stop motion for that movie to just consulting on the movements of the T-Rex and other dinosaurs actually caused him to shelve Mad God because he thought that was it that was the death of stop motion in cinema which is crazy but uh, as a kid I liked RoboCop. Uh, there was a Saturday morning TV show or cartoon of RoboCop. I was like, this is awesome. So my parents let me watch the movie, which was very different. <laughs> Guy just getting obliterated of bolts in the first few minutes. <laughs> yeah, which I'm talking, I was, I think, six or seven yeah. when I saw this movie just being like, <gasps> but yeah. I still remember... Uh, when it got to the ED-209, like the main <laughs> mechanical villain of that movie, just this robot that's going downstairs, well, falling downstairs, falling but downstairs. chasing RoboCop and how cool that looked uh, and how jarring and shocking. There was just something really f- neat about that that stuck with me for a long time. So when I found out Phil Tippett was the guy that had done all of these visual effects that blew my mind as a kid. And the title, I think Mad God is very compelling and evocative and such a, a strong promise of what this movie is going to contain that 
I was really excited and really looking forward to finally being able to watch it. And I guess it's something in Hollywood people had known about for a while. And then he actually did a Kickstarter for it in 2013. And that was a whole <laughs> a whole thing. It took another eight years for the movie to finally come out after a Kickstarter that raised $140,000. But I finally got to see it in at the Alamo Draft House, so in theaters, and watched it. I think it was a eleven o'clock screening or ten o'clock screening. It was really late; it might have even been midnight. And the entire theater was just dumbfounded by what they watched. It ended, and you could feel. You know, sometimes when a movie ends and it's quiet, you get the sense that people just are quiet they're getting up they're leaving this was a stunned silence everybody had the same what did i just watch that was i think a masterpiece but what did i just watch and slowly conversation picked up slowly people are asking questions and it was one of those things where i got home and started writing about it and realized it was on shutter already and was able just to start watching it on repeat over the next few days. So within 24 hours, I watched this movie twice and was just really, from the get-go, blown away by its scope, scale, dynamics, uh, worldview. And you were just salivating at the idea of being able to explain this movie, I'm sure. Yeah, because it felt like it was one of those ones where when it first ended, I had no idea I don't like it. What, how, how do you even begin to interpret this? And this is what I feel like I'm best at is seeing something and being like, I know exactly what it was doing. And it even left me initially being like, ah, something with creation and destruction, but eh, getting to rewatch it multiple times, it felt like a lot of the, the pieces started to reveal themselves, uh, which was, nice and then fun to be able to <laughs> kind of start to connect the dots i felt like the famous meme of charlie in always sunny where it's all the lines connecting to everything he's like hear me out the mail yeah so when i first saw this movie it was on shutter uh i watched it in the my lovely darkened basement <laughs> which i think is proper for this movie i i am I feel like the theater is the place to see this movie. I'm a little jealous I didn't get to do that. But I I feel like the tenor in my room when I watched it was very similar. It was just me. Lauren would never watch this movie. But <laughs> like it was this moment of like, I don't think I fully understood everything that was happening. But like I have an idea and there was enough going on that like I've never really seen before. As somebody yeah. who doesn't watch a ton of stop motion movies, like I've seen, I've actually seen a few stop motion pictures. Um, it's not as common for them to be feature length films, uh, but I've definitely watched a lot of stuff from like the Quay brothers or Larry Jordan, like these like kind of like artsier guys who made short films. And I was always attracted to that kind of animation and always really enjoyed i i more enjoyed it in i think the short film formats <laughs> like the idea of it being a feature-length movie probably never even really crossed my mind like a lot of these guys are just doing stuff like this and if you were going to do feature-length movies 
it had to be something like Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, that had like an actual recognizable story. I can never imagine these short artistic pieces becoming feature length. So for Phil Tibbet to, to do what he did and create something mammoth that flows very well, um, has a lot of parts that are seemingly disconnected yet feel cohesive. Like at the end of the movie, you there is that sense of like, whoa, like what did I just watch? Like I may not have connected with it super deep. Like I would like to connect with the movie typically. Um, even though I did, the more I thought about it, but still like the fact that a movie can leave you with that kind of impression and can create that kind of atmosphere in a room. Like that's not common. Like not every movie can do that. Like he, regardless of whether or not you like, like the movie, it's hard to deny that. Like he did something really special with it. Yeah. Just it's, one of those things where the medium of stop motion, this has to be in consideration for the greatest stop motion movie achievement of all time. Yeah. Again, I don't know a ton about stop motion. Like I'm sure there are plenty of people who do feature length stop motion pictures. Like I even did a little perusing on the internet beforehand and like, you know, there are plenty, especially uh, there. Are, there are a lot of Japanese movies that do it, um, and they look super weird and crazy. <laughs> and I probably would enjoy watching them. But f- as far as like a mainstream, mainstream in quotes, kind of movie that like we know about that comes from somebody who's so established, like it does carry a sort of importance that you could give it that kind of accolade. In my mind. One thousand percent, because I, I think the most recent stop motions I watched were things like Isle of Dogs, which yeah. I enjoyed a lot, but I was never necessarily in awe of the stop motion or Anomalisa by Charlie Kaufman, mm-hmm. which was also very impressive, but never left me wanting to just f- slowly scrub through scenes just to admire every detail of it and maybe that's because something uh anomalisa feels very like it has a fidelity to the real world so a lot of it takes place in a hotel and Mm. just seeing a realistic hotel hallway is it that (laughs) it's impressive but it's also just okay a realistic hotel hallway versus the whole fantastic world of mad god yeah um, so the first time I saw it, like I was definitely like in awe of it in a sense, but I wouldn't say like I loved it, you know, like certain parts of it moved me, I guess. Um, like, especially when I thought about it in retrospect and how I think the movie in a broad sense for just talking about the movie broadly is this depiction of the real world and even concentrating on like the grotesque world that Phil Tippett created as a parallel to our actual world like that's almost reductive to like just focus on that and think like oh Phil Tippett just sees the world as like crazy and terrible like I don't even know if that's necessarily true although it very much could be Um, but I think more of the thing that spoke to me was the fact that there are all these conflicting parties in this world and all of these people who are trying to get by and trying to either build or destroy things um you i think he does a fantastic job of just creating that sense that this is a world in disarray 
and there's constant conflict and division. And in, th in those senses, like, yeah, I think this movie's super reflective of our world and just how chaotic things have become. Um, so I very much liked that, but I didn't know if, you know, at the end of the day, it is a stop motion movie and it is just like a lot of scenes where like, I don't know what's going on. And there are scenes that feel like they drag on for too long. And so at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, eh, like I liked it and I see the parallels, but I don't know if enough is being done throughout to really make a connection between that and the real world. And like, in the sense that like I'm moved by it and think like, oh gosh, like this helps me see the world in a whole new way. Um, and so on the second watch before this podcast, I kind of wondered like, is it going to hit this time? Like, will I feel that a little bit more? And I definitely did. Like I, with that mindset heading into the second viewing, I definitely, it, it was a little more moving in that way. Like I could see the, you just can connect a lot of the pieces of this movie to what you see in everyday life and just how contentious things have become and how everybody's fighting to achieve status, uh, get above another group, uh, push an agenda. It, the, the title Mad God starts to kind of make a little more sense as I see the movie through that lens. Um, so maybe I'm cynical <laughs> for seeing the movie that way, but like that's how it spoke to me. And so this time I, it hit a little bit more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. No, it definitely feels as if there's a commentary on the fact that there is a selfish streak, a cruel streak in the world. And what happens if we were to expand that to everybody behaves this way? Everybody's self-interested. Everybody's only looking out for themselves. And it's this dog-eat-dog -dog world right. where bad things happen because people don't care to look down and see there's gnomes arguing in front of them. They just walk and step on them. Mm. Uh, everyone is this thing that's setting a trap for this little creature 
is just setting itself up to be eaten by this bigger creature. Right. The things getting experimented on, could the assassins save them? Maybe. Are they even able to be saved? Eh? Does he go on anyway? Yeah. There's just such a, a harshness that in some ways is so extreme. It makes me appreciate the humanity that we do have and the the kindness sure. that we have and reminds me that I don't want to be like the characters and creatures and things in this movie and be so cruel to one another. Right. Yeah, that is certainly a way to see this movie. And I, actually, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That is a huge... I feel like everything you just said is a huge reason I connect with certain filmmakers like Brian De Palma. Like, I feel like if you looked at his movies and just like the awful things that happen to people and the things people go through and just how far people are pushed, you could view him as cynical, as a pessimist who's like looking at the world that way. But in my mind, when a movie goes further and further that direction, I kind of tend to see more and more optimism from a filmmaker, depending on how they handle it, of course. I think the way Brian De Palma ha- handles his characters, there's always that sense of hopefulness by the end, that even if something awful happened to somebody and they end in a negative place, it is that's a blueprint for you as a viewer. Like This is a guide to like these things that happen to all of us, these sort of universal truths that are just part of our lives that we don't want to recognize but are definitely there and are definitely as trying and harsh as they are in this movie and his characters serve as these role models for like navigating those things and coming out the other side like they become cautionary tales they become like these instruction manuals for how to handle all of that so i i you know that really hits home everything you said about this movie like the more and more (laughs) despicable it is the more and more i'm like yeah like but like, think about all the things in the world that aren't that way. And think about the things you could do to push the world away from that direction. The, the movie can be inspiring in that way. Yeah, the absence becomes the point. Or the absence of those things makes you appreciate kind of what you have. In a, a weird way, it's that uh, maybe that's why The Wizard of Oz is so impactful. Because ultimately, you do have that understanding there's no place like home. Right. As messed up as home is and as much as she thinks she wants to get away by having the juxtaposition of what Oz is like and the chaos of that place, as many highs as there is, it has you appreciating what you do have. And Mm -hmm. Mad God does serve as a, a bit of that foil of you think the world bad and it is and we're just going to show you a world that's even worse. And (laughs) yeah. How do you feel about that? I I really love to... Uh, I like when movies do a good job of framing or giving some kind of inciting action to things. Like, this one event kicked off everything else. And mm. I love that we get the opening scene here that just has a floaty guy. Uh, we see a floaty guy later in the movie who takes the baby... <laughs> But you have kind of an early version of it standing atop this huge edifice, uh, which I think of as the Tower of Babel. 
especially giving the biblical context of this movie and the idea that you know people built this tower of babel and they were united and it got close to the heavens and god was like knock it off yeah and struck down the tower of babel and cursed humanity with different languages so people couldn't ever unite to build something like that again but it did feel like the opening of the movie was establishing this babble like idea of people getting a bit too big for their britches and pissing god off and that's kind of becomes emblematic or symbolic of all of humanity's hubris and all of the annoying things we've done and that leading to god essentially strickening the world or abandoning the world and leaving it in the place that it is and having that as the initial inciting action frame and then catching us up to all right so this is what it's like now and giving us this tour (laughs) through this disheartening cruel awful place even though as you're saying as you said earlier it's a silent film so there's not a lot in the way of exposition or in even narrative development aside from this guy with a briefcase and a map we don't even know if it's a guy this thing with a briefcase and a map uh Mm. taking it to a certain location but having that frame just makes the journey through that world so fascinating to me yeah yeah it's uh i mean everything you're saying too makes me think about the title of the movie and how you could certainly frame everything through the idea of like a god you know god did this to the world and like that makes him mad but yeah maybe this is just like a personal reading because i am not religious i am very much an atheist and i think of god as a man-made creation (laughs) so like it, it it's interesting to me in that sense that like we like to create this tale that only a mad God could have created a world like this, which again, I see this movie and I see it all as parallels for the real world that we're in right now. Um, so it's not so crazy to think that like the God that made our world is mad. Like who would have done something like this? And it becomes revealing that if you think God is a man-made creation, then we're kind of always pushing ourselves to those extreme ends. Like, we look to the sky and say like a mad god did this yet like we are the ones doing everything we are the ones pushing civilization in this way and it causes all of these different like avenues these different strains of people to be established uh whether it's people who torture and maim greedy people uh revolutionist anarchist um somebody who's looking to achieve like a higher power and create like new beings and like push them out into the world to have influence like it 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 creates the idea of like who is truly the mad god here like who is mad um and i again i that really speaks to me like it while that could be viewed as like a negative thing that the world's just mad like i feel like it's just a great way to kind of center everything and help you realize like what madness truly looks like and why people are driven and pushed to be this way. Like we want to create this big grand tale that made us all this way. Like we are the ones really doing it. We are the ones pushing ourselves to these extremes. Um, And it makes you wonder like, it creates this idea of like there must be a savior, 
which this movie also pushes yet like is that really the solution here like is there a savior or do we just all need to kind of look around and realize like look what we're doing to ourselves like look what we've done um we put ourselves into this mess and we can be the ones to fix it we don't have to look to a god to fix it like the madness is all around us and we created it and we can end it right makes that argument for a degree of personal responsibility in terms of the kindness with which we would treat others and the way in which we treat ourselves and the impact that we can have on the world just think about there's the whole factory scene which i think is probably the scene that would go down as the most famous from this movie Mm -hmm. um and also the the little guys that are like dropping into the pit i the whole the whole pit them creating things there's the production lines there's clearly like a working facility with workers and managers and we see the way in which the workers are completely expendable (laughs) and they're often dying in the act but they're being made nonstop as well so a new one is made as often as someone's being killed on the job which is just a very brutal way of commenting on capitalist society at mm-hmm. this point. But I totally. think it's something that anybody who has worked in a capitalist society will look at and have some identification with and go, yeah, I felt that kind of crushing grind in the way in which the machine doesn't care about me. Mm-hmm. But there's that moment right before the assassin goes down through a hatch where one of the fecal matter ash people, because uh, they're the byproducts of the creatures that are being electrocuted. Uh, it's a whole yeah. thing. But one of them looks at the assassin and they have this moment of eye contact. And then the giant rancor like manager or foreman comes along and there's a moment where the assassin could say come with me you know and take that thing out of there and give it an opportunity and instead he just goes down the hatch and the foreman beast stomps the guy to death yeah and that's how that culminates and it's like why could it the assassin have done could it have helped at, at one of these things at any time along the way, which creates such an interesting tension because since the assassins ostensibly at, for the first bit of the movie, the main character, we do feel an inherent uh, identification or an urge to attach to that character and root for them in a way to be heroic or to do something only for the movie to constantly deny us this character having any development in that way whatsoever, but also doing any of the human things that we would hope that it might do. Help the monkey, help this other thing, Mm -hmm. help someone. Uh, That when it's eventually attacked and performed surgery on, it's such a weird feeling, at least to me, because on the one hand, I did want to root for this character on the other hand it was just as cruel and uncaring as anyone else in the movie so you're also not as attached to it as you would 
expect, but then you're seeing it operated on and it's guts and all the things that make it up and are pulled out of it. That's heartbreaking in a way too, because even if you didn't like the assassin, that should not be anyone's fate. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, so like how much do we want to get into the actual components of this movie and like trying to explain things. <laughs> Are you feeling up to that, Chris? I mean, we can definitely talk about some of those aspects. I, I just feel like maybe just on a broader level, because we are talking about this movie very broadly um, and just what it almost just what it means philosophically about the way you see people and see the world. But there are all of these characters that I if you know what they represent and who they are a little bit more, I think it probably does help understand the movie. Like, you know, the last man is, it, or is it the assassin? Is that what, is it, what his name is? Uh, the last man is the human actor. Oh, that's right. That's sending the assassins out that's into right. the world. Yeah. So like, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was my main question at the movie. Cause it felt like the assassin was, had this mission of setting a bomb and the bomb was going to destroy the world, which we see as the doctors performing the surgery on the first assassin, there ends up being a flash to another assassin, which I don't think was this one, but we see that assassin go down journey through a similarly like messed up world, but not the same world. And it's war-torn, it's stricken, and it also has the briefcase and just ends up going down into this place. So we see a whole army of them, especially at the end. So this seems like a thing that's been happening a lot. This last man is sending these assassins out into the world to blow up these other worlds or these areas. And it seems that down on the ground floor, then you have these people that are capturing the assassins and digging out these worm creatures from them. <laughs> there are these worm baby, maybe the soul representative of the soul. And then handing that over to the floaty guy in the plague doctor mask that then takes them to the alchemist. So you have these two forces. That's the last man and then the alchemist and the whole system the alchemist has set up. And with each of those babies that it finds, it's pulverizing it into this mixture that then is being used to create an entirely new universe. But even in that other universe that we see that even has a 2001 Space Odyssey reference mm -hmm. in it, <laughs> um, we see that there's essentially another version of the Tower of Babel that opened this movie and that people go and blow it up. So there's this repeating tension between these worlds being created, falling apart, and some entity trying to blow it up, and whether or not that is just a total destruction of that world or an attempt to rebirth it, as in destruction leading to new beginnings kind of thing. Right. Uh, and we have that as kind of where the plot goes in the first essentially half 
the assassins carrying the bomb to the point and just before it's able to set it it's taken away so the bomb's just sitting there primed but stuck and not exploding and we see that there's ten thousand other briefcases there of identical briefcases with the bombs so when the movie ends with all of this stuff happening but it triggers time to stop being frozen and to pick up and we see all these clocks go and things progress and eventually that clock itself kicks back off and implicates that that world too is going to explode I like to think that there's some sense of hope that comes through with that, that the destruction isn't just this nihilistic, we're going to blow ourselves up and that's the end of it all, but that there's this attempt at getting rid of all this stuff that has built up, all this toxicity, all this negativity, and the world's going to start anew. So I think The Last Man is definitely part of this process. And I don't know if that's supposed to be the mad God of the title or if the mad God is just, I mean, if the character was the mad God, you would expect it to kind of be called mad God and not the last man. Yeah. (laughs) But he definitely has these godly connotations and the fact that he seems to be above these other worlds and sending the assassins down and has this degree of power and prestige over everybody else and it feels fitting with this worldview that the god wouldn't be this heavenly perfect being but rather is this more unappealing maybe kind of a bit of a a gross entity Hmm. that is still maybe trying to do some good but is also a bit disgusted by the world around and trying to make a difference. But I think that's ultimately, regardless of who that character is, if it's just this random man or if it is the mad God itself, that there is this attempt at destroying the negativity in order to rebuild and build anew and have another chance. And there's some beauty in that but also a sadness that it's reaching the point where things are blown up and ended and yeah that beauty sadness tension is because i think the the end of the movie does indicate the cyclical nature of these things with the time and just with the clock advancing and then that cuckoo coming out at the end like it almost feels like the beginning of something new at the end. Like everything's going to start all over. And to me, like the, the more I read about history, <laughs> you know, like I've read about the, the exact same thing we went through with the coronavirus. Like I've read that's happened before in this country, essentially like the same groups, the same dynamics, the same tensions that exist between like warring thoughts, like all that shit we've gone through before. So in that sense, like, there's a sadness that you're just like, oh, like we keep doing the same things over and over. But the hopefulness that comes in is that like it is a fresh chance to start anew, to like build something new, to enforce good habits, to push society in the right direction. And eventually, you know, things are going to be terrible, go in the wrong direction. And then you just kind of have to destroy it 
build it back up again. So that's, I totally agree with you there. That sadness, hopefulness, tension, that, that that's very heavy at the end of the movie. Yeah, and it seems every potential hero is also a bit of a potential villain. Right. And that it takes a very hard, some might argue realistic look at what the costs are for this rebirth. Just the fact that the assassin's torn open and this thing inside of him that's valuable. It's, I mean, it's ugly as can be, but Mm. you can tell that it means a lot to the woman. It has these special properties that that's inside of somebody. And that gives birth to a whole other universe. But the process of extracting that and the process of converting it through crushing it into a powder and mixing it with things. So it's like, is the assassin bad? Eh? But is the assassin also trying to do something good? Eh? Is the alchemist bad? But is the alchemist also trying to do something good? It's fascinating in that every potential hero is also a potential villain. And getting at that really mixed morality of things. Mm, Right. Without being so clear cut as this is good and this is bad. It's just there is a silver lining here, but there's also what's the opposite of silver lining? A red streak. (laughs) Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that about this movie. It's I guess that's really the refreshing thing about it is, you know, at the end of like every movie ever because you know is as different as a movie can be and as much as a movie can establish itself as like doing something new like it's still a movie like they follow the same patterns ticks emotions you know the three-act structure mad god kind of defies it all like maybe you could find that all in there but that's not really the way you consume this movie it's not the way it washes over you you're just taking in all these disparate disparate elements at once so to feel anything at the end of this end of a movie like that uh, I think it it just speaks to everything we're talking about here at the towards the end of this episode and like everything that's being done in the film and all of the different ideas like converging it it's such a unique experience to watch something like this and to have to be on the other side of it and reflect on everything and assign goodness or badness to things or people or characters like it's it's just such a challenging movie in that way and it's refreshing in that way i know he had been inspired by a lot of different stories through mythology and different religions and philosophy so it does feel like it's amalgamating a lot of different subjects and maybe making some references to various things for example we had mentioned the 2001 space odyssey reference to the it's not the obelisk what's it called the monolith the monolith thank you yeah (laughs) uh the monolith that flies through and just how in 2001 space odyssey the monolith is kind of what kicks off humanity's uh, evolution or we see it with the apes at the beginning and it their interaction with it causes them to discover tools. And it Mm. seems each interaction with the monolith in 2001, a space odyssey precedes a jump in technology and innovations in the, the human world. 
which is cool to cool to see it's like the evolution from ape into the evolution to spacefaring people into the evolution of creating this ai technology with hal 9000 uh, which then leads to the merging of people or the rebirth of humanity in that space baby super baby kind of thing mm-hmm. but the monolith becomes this symbolism of intelligence and life and using that as a means of showing that these monoliths go to a planet land there and essentially create life there uh, or civilization or society the same way that we kind of see with 2001 just the way in which he's making references like that is very fascinating to other but, cryptic movies that don't explain anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then even, I think one of the most fascinating things to me is totals 10 seconds in this movie is the use of the eyeball. Oh yeah. Where we see a very real human's eyeball. What looks like it's giving it's seeing either this world or is getting shocked or at the end of the movie right yeah at the end of the movie because there are several eyeballs throughout this movie yeah is the eyeball i can't for some reason i always forget if the eyeball is there at the very beginning no it's just the eye after the credits okay yeah that's it yeah um yeah, then a brief close-up of someone's eye. There's so much shadow, you can only see the eye because of some ambient lights. And then it just closes, which kind of gives this a sense of, was this all just somebody's dream? Is this a reference to Phil Tippett himself? Right. And is this degree of meta as this is everything that's been in his mind and now it's externalized and he can finally just close his eye and rest? I like it's, that. It's one of those, it's one of those moments as you were talking about how non-traditional this is in terms of narrative and how it triggers a lot of curious thoughts and demands that you engage with it in a way that a lot of movies don't because it's so void of telling you what to see and what to feel. Just having this eye that's there at the very end is just another of those little twist moments or little aspects that adds a whole universe of conversation. I love when movies do stuff like that. Like um, it, it just in general, I love when a movie ends with something that makes you just like completely reevaluate everything. Just like, Oh wait, is that what this was? Like, I love that shit. Um, it reminds me of Enter the Void, which is probably my favorite movie ever. And the whole movie, like, is this guy who, well, ostensibly, when you're as you're watching the movie, he's killed during a drug deal, and the rest of the movie is him kind of looking at his life and uh, looking at what happens in the aftermath of his life. But you could also view the whole movie as he goes on a drug trip at the very beginning, and the rest of the movie is him reflecting on himself and going on this like trip that forces him to think about dying and like what kind of legacy he would leave. I really like movies that achieve something like that, that aren't so cut and dry and just about dead, you know, what happens when we die, but like 
thinking about the idea that we could die. <laughs> like there's that's so much deeper to me to have to reflect on the idea of death and what the world becomes in the wake of our death. So I like that reading a lot. Everything you just said that the idea that we're not just watching a movie with characters in a story. We're watching something created by somebody, the way someone envisions something. And in that sense, like not everything needs to connect and make sense and be explained. Like it's all just part of a general message and a general worldview. Um, and to me, I, yeah, I get jazzed when movies do stuff like that. Like I, I get way more out of movies when they're going down those trails. Yeah. I, the last Kickstarter update, update 42, uh, from Phil Tippett himself begins with what began as a fever dream, dot, 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 just basically stayed a fever dream for the better part of 30 years. Wow. That's cool. So it does feel with that eyeball that there's a degree of this was a fever dream. This was a vision. This was all of my thoughts about the world and philosophy and society, which I think takes some of the load bearing off of the viewer. Yeah. Instead of trying to figure out this grounded, realistic, which it's, probably ironic to you that it's me saying this i know totally i love it though i'm, I'm sitting here just like so happy <laughs> uh instead of needing to figure out everything that's being said and taking it verbatim or literal it, just understanding that this is a conveyance of the emotions that somebody has about the world yeah. and you don't have to piece together every component you just have to understand the vibe of it the feel of it and when you have that view of it and you see the way in which Phil Tippett is kind of chastising the world, but also championing it and sending out those threads of hope. I I, I find it very beautiful. Just the whole movie, even in its darkest parts is still so beautiful to me. Yeah. I love all that. Like this whole discussion about the eye and like that it could be, meta in that sense that speaks to one probably the last thing actually the key thing that i really love about this movie that really hit home this time is just that it is such an intense labor of love like there's such a worksmanship attitude to it in a way that i always love when movies are like that it's why i think i like a lot of movies that people hate (laughs) like no matter how shitty they are in quotes narratively or just like whatever we determine movies to be shitty for like i'm always moved by a movie that's just like trying its ass off and like trying to create something new and take these normal things in like crazy directions um so in that sense like i just i love mad god for that and i like that at the end like he's kind of cueing us into that that this was a movie you watched and enjoyed but like it was a movie i also really needed to make like it's something i achieved after 30 years like it it was this fever dream that like is finally ending now thanks for watching like that's fucking awesome yeah and there's a meta beauty to it too in that we talked earlier how Tippett shelved this movie for 20 years Hmm. and he has a studio of course a a legend like him doing the kind of work he does with the expertise he does it's great that he has a studio where he's able to mentor people uh, obviously do work but 
also give people pass on these techniques and tools and understanding that he has and why this picked back up was because people that were at the studio encouraged him for years to give it another chance and it was their like love support the fact that people were coming in it's making me tear up which is sad and uh. stupid but <laughs> he had people volunteering for years to help him finish this movie and it's a labor of love but not just from Tippett, but from people who believe in him and admire him and wanted to see him make this and i think that that's represents so much of what's so beautiful about the movie industry especially you know me as somebody that writes novels it's just me <laughs> yeah right, right. It, it's me writing this thing and you might have an editor publishers that help but it's such a personal act the thing that always impresses me about filmmaking is how collective it is and how many people have to give of themselves to make a movie possible and what that says about humanity and people and it's like mad god is the one of the bleakest movies i've ever seen but it was only made possible by people who were full of hope and full of love and yeah. that's kind of incredible to me there you have it that's mad god mm. okay, so well. where does it on uh, your rankings oh my god I forgot about that whole part of this podcast. Um, <laughs> looking at my rankings. So for anyone who doesn't know, we have rankings on the site that we, we started ranking every movie we watched starting in 2022. So this is just a collection, not of every movie we've ever seen, but just those movies. Yeah, which I'm up to 143 right now. And I currently have Mad God at... see 28 which i think i'm gonna have to bump that up i i currently have it above enemy and get out at 30 and 29 but i have die hard above mad god i think i would i'm gonna put mad god above die hard yeah um i have it so i have 421 movies on my list <laughs> And as much as I, I feel like this always happens, like I will praise a movie to death, but then it sounds like I rate it really low on my, but to be clear, everything I would say from 315 above, like I consider to be good movies like I like. So I'm trying my best to only watch movies I think I'll like. <laughs> I usually do a pretty good job. So when I say that I have it at 210, that is not a bad thing. Like to me, that means it's like it's in the upper tier of movies I watch. And, you know, as much as I I am moved by it and really love what it represents, um, at the end of the day, it I think a movie like this, it's it's a little tougher for me to make a part of myself, you know? Maybe if I watched more movies like this and this was something I was more attuned to, it could be higher. But I think at two hundred ten, like it's a good representation of like I like it a lot. It, it does everything I in a sense that I want movies to do. Um, and it, it the fact that it's above so many movies with like regular ass storylines like sh just shows how good it is, you know? Yeah, that's I found a similar thing with my list to where 
my neutral category tops out at 92. Right. So anything that's above 92 to me is a, a decent movie. Yeah. And anything that's in the top 50 is something that I liked and enjoyed. And I think that translates pretty much. I have 143, so it's the top essentially 33 percent yeah you're at 450 it's in the top 50 percent which yeah, so, again doesn't sound great but every movie in that top 50 percent i'm like oh i love this movie yeah it makes it a much stronger candidate yeah so yeah i i could even see myself bumping this up higher so, i definitely could it sounds like you had a very uh memorable experience with it yeah, and I've I've seen it five or six times now. Yeah, and then scrubbed through it ten more times. <laughs> but yeah, what a movie! Absolutely. Okay, well, um, thanks for listening. We took a, like a month off there, but we're back. Yeah, and up next we have uh, a Tom Cruise Tom Cruise thriller. Oh, yeah, that's the only tease you're getting. (laughs) Whatever could it be? It's not Top Gun, though. No, no, and it's not Risky Business. No, and it's not Top Gun Maverick. No, no, of course not. And it's not riskier business. No. Could you imagine? (laughs) I mean, they made a sequel to Top Gun 30 years later. Why not? We should make just a bunch of sequels for 70s and 80s movies. Yeah, that all star Tom Cruise. Yeah. A few more good men. <laughs> uh, the firmer firm. <laughs> the <laughs> taste of money. <laughs> okay, that's a good place to end. Yeah, that that is definitely a good place to end because it can only go down from there. Yeah. All Cheers. Right. Bye.